Awesome. Well, thanks for that introduction, Mark. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you all tonight on this special Christmas Eve night. It's such a privilege to, to gather with my church family and to open up God's Word and, and, and study it together and, and, yeah, just seek to apply it to our lives. But I'd like to start off tonight in kind of an unexpected place, talking about the history of the atom, the history of the atom. I, I apologize to any high schoolers that are in the room. You thought you were on Christmas break, but we're going to have a little bit of science talk happening here. So first off, atoms were discovered in the early 1800s, but they've been a theory since the 400s B.C., um, way back then, Democritus, a guy named Democritus, believed that all matter was made up of these hard, solid, indestructible, incompressible atoms. Everything is made up of atoms, he said. It's as small as matter gets. Everything builds off of these tiny things called atoms. And it's pretty impressive that he had such a good guess of what atoms were, or even that they existed, given the fact that it wouldn't be scientifically proven until 2,000 years after his, after his theory in the early 1800s. But then it wasn't until 1897, about 100 years after that, that we learned that while it's true that all matter is made up of these, of these atoms, they're actually even more complex than we had thought. There are actually things happening inside, inside an atom that Democritus hadn't thought about when electrons were discovered, and then a little bit later, protons, and then a little bit later, neutrons irreducible building blocks of nature was refined. The atom was actually a lot more complex than we had originally thought. And the reason I mention all this is because our passage in the Bible tonight reminds me a lot of an atom, actually. Over the past several weeks, as I've been thinking about this passage, I was trying to think of a way to describe it. It's dense, it's weighty, it's one of our key scriptural building blocks in our understanding of the incarnation of Christ. It's, it's, it's what we come together to celebrate every Christmas is that Christ became human, a baby even, and lived on earth like us. Our passage in the book of John is about as compact of an explanation of the birth of Christ as we can get. But when we look at it closely and we, when we break it apart and we, when we study it carefully, we realize that there are riches to be mined in its depths. So turn in your Bible, if you have one, to John chapter 1, verse 14. That video we watched was over the whole chapter of, of John 1, but we'll be looking specifically at John 1, verse 14. And as you're turning there, I'd like to tell you about a man who read this passage in the 17th century. This man is known as Junius the Younger. I honestly only know two things about Junius the Younger. First, that he is younger than whoever, he was, whoever was older than him. And second, this quote that I'm about to read to you. But Junius the Younger was particularly impacted by this chapter of Scripture and specifically this verse that we'll be looking at today. So he wrote in his account of his own life, My father, who was frequently reading the New Testament and had long observed with grief the progress I had made in infidelity, had put that book in my way in his library in order to attract my attention. I unwittingly opened the New Testament thus providentially laid before me. At the very first view, although I was deeply engaged in other thoughts, that grand chapter of the evangelist and apostle presented itself to me. I read part of the chapter and was so greeted that I instantly become struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of the composition. As infinitely surpassing the highest flights of human eloquence, my body shuddered, my mind was in amazement, 
And I was so agitated the whole day that I scarcely knew who I was, nor did the agitation cease, but continued till it was at last soothed by a humble faith in him who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hear God's word to his church in John chapter 1, verse 14, this Christmas Eve. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's be stunned tonight by the glory and the grace of our God that are shown in these just nine words in English. As we seek to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying through John tonight, we're going to ask three questions of the text, of this little, of this little passage here. We're going to ask three questions of the text. We'll ask a who question, we'll ask a what question, and we'll ask a why question. We won't be asking where and when, so I apologize to those two questions. But we'll ask... First, who is the word? Second, we'll ask, what did he do? And third, we'll ask, why did he do it? Who is the word, what did he do, and why did he do it? So for our first question, who is the word? If, you've, if you grew up in the church, or even if you've been around it for any amount of time, you probably know what the safest answer to any question that you're asked in church is, What's the classic Sunday school answer to any question that you're asked? Jesus. I love how kids can pick up on this so quick, by the way. Kids, kids are smart. They figure out pretty quickly that this Jesus guy is really important to the people who are teaching him, to, to the people who are teaching them. And I love when kids totally misapply Jesus as an answer, too. Like, you could be talking about David and Goliath, and you could ask, so who did David defeat with just his sling and a stone? And if you catch a kid only half paying attention, I bet one of them would say, uh, Jesus. But um, in this case, the answer to this question tonight actually is Jesus. So you got it right this time, but stay on your toes. Uh, jump up a few lines in your Bible to verse 1. We see just a few verses earlier at the beginning of this chapter that in the beginning was the Word, meaning that he is eternal, the Word was with God, meaning that he's in some way separate from God the Father. And third, that the Word was God, meaning that he's also that same God who was in the beginning. So this Word is the eternal God himself. He's the second person of the Trinity. This Word is none other than the God who created the heavens and the seas and all that are in them. Jesus, throughout Scripture, has a lot of names and titles that he's given. For instance, Lamb of God, Son of David... Messiah, Christ, but, this is, but in our passage tonight, this is the first time that he is called the Word. This is the first time that he's referred to as the Word. Why does John call Jesus the Word? How does he get this title? Well, think about what a Word does. Think about what words do. What do words accomplish? When I use my words, what am I expressing? My thoughts, right? My inner being, my soul even, if I could go so far as to say that. You use your words to express yourself. When you want to learn, about, when you want to learn more about someone, you don't ask them to draw you a picture of themselves or to dance a dance about their life. You want words. If your wife asks you how your day was, she doesn't want you to mime your answer to her. Or if you're on a date with someone and they ask you what your dreams in life are and you stand up and interpretive dance your answer, you're not going out with her again. Or if you're in a job interview and you get asked that question of, uh, tell us about yourself, and you shadow puppet your answer, you need to make sure to keep your resume up to date. 
So we want words. They want words. We use words to express and to reveal who we are as people, right? So John here calls Jesus the word because he is the person who reveals God to us. He is God's ultimate self-expression to humanity. He's God communicated to us in a person. One author explains that Jesus as the word means that he is the living revealer of God, the very voice of God in this world. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the power of God's words, right? He created the world by his words. He rescued and delivered people by his words. He revealed himself to people by, the, by his words. So it's a glorious thing here that Jesus is referred to as the word of God. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is the living word of God to us. He is the one who makes known to us the heart of God. He is the one who most fully expresses to us. And likewise, we learn from the book of Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at his son. Look at the word of God, Christ Jesus, who has made an otherwise unknowable God known to us. Every one of us here has heard a lot of words about God, right? We've all heard words about who God is and what he's like. Maybe even slander against his name and against his character. Maybe that's all that you've ever heard. Other people's words about God. And that's why you feel like you don't know him or maybe even don't want to know him. But God has given us something so much more reliable than other people's words, the words of our peers or the words of our culture to express himself. He's given us his son. He's given us Christ, the living word of God who has made God known to us. Search the scriptures and read of Christ, the word of God, and you learn who God is and what he's like. When we read the Christmas story each year, we are reading the story of God entering the world and revealing himself to us. So then let's jump back to our original question. Who is the word? The word is God himself, Jesus Christ. So what did the word do? That's our second question. What did he do? If God himself is the word, what did he do? Well, we read, we read in John 1 that the word became flesh. Hold up right there. We've probably read this passage enough or we've been around for enough Christmases that this phrase doesn't knock us on the floor like it ought to. God himself became flesh. Look down at your arm. That's flesh. You've got it. The person next to you has it too. Take a look. If they don't, then go ahead and slowly inch away from them. You don't want to be sitting next to them anymore. We all have flesh. This room is full of flesh. Every person in the history of the world, every human in the history of the world has had flesh. This is really the defining aspect of our humanity in the Bible. When the Bible speaks of humanity, it often speaks of flesh. So to say that the word became flesh is to say that God himself became like us. What did he do? God, God became like us. In Christ, God took on our humanity. John is almost shocking in the language that he uses here in this passage. Jesus does not just bear the resemblance of a human, or he, he doesn't temporarily choose to look like us, but he became flesh. 
he became like us. At the risk of maybe sounding a little bit ridiculous here, this should be more startling to us than if I were to say that I became a gopher. The ontological distance between me and a gopher is much smaller than the distance between God and man. But this eternal God who literally spoke the universe into existence became flesh. The word became flesh. God himself became like us. Charles Spurgeon says of Christ's incarnation, he that made man was made man. The word became flesh. God himself became human like us. He was born as a baby. This should be enough to make our faces hit the carpet in worship of our great God as we consider this infant in the manger on Christmas. God now flesh. How could we ever fully understand that Jesus, the Word, became like us? Now we should make sure that we're not misunderstanding what it means here that Jesus became flesh. It's certain, we should make sure that we're not misunderstanding a few different things. To say this doesn't mean that Jesus only came looking like us. Jesus isn't God in disguise or, or God wearing a human costume. Jesus became flesh. He became like us in our very humanity. He became human, but without sin. It's also not to say that when Jesus became flesh, he stopped being God. To say that Jesus became like us is not to say that he lost any of his wordness or his godness. When Jesus became flesh, when he became like us, when he was born as a baby, he remained fully divine, fully God. But in contrast, Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, when he wanted to become a baseball player, he had to set aside his basketball playerness, if I can make that a word. Michael Jordan cannot, in, cannot be in the same moment a basketball player and a baseball player. And that's just occupationally we're talking about. But what we're talking about here in this passage tonight is that God himself became man without ceasing to be God. Christ became not just, a, not just merely a godly man, as you might hear some say, but he became the God-man. And the last thing I'll mention that it doesn't mean is that Jesus only temporarily became like us. No, when Jesus became flesh, he became flesh for good. He was born in the flesh, he grew in the flesh, he lived in the flesh, he died in the flesh, he was resurrected in the flesh, and right now, he is seated in the flesh at the right hand of God the Father, waiting to come back in the flesh for his people. The word became flesh. This is our answer to our second question. What did he do? God himself became like us. So then, why did he do it? That's our third question, if you remember it from the start. Why did Jesus leave the riches of heaven to come to earth and to become a man, to become like us. Put simply, it was to be with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we celebrate every Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God himself became like us to be with us. Now we could spend an entire sermon unpacking the significance of this phrase here, dwelt among us. 
This word here that is translated as dwell is just dripping with Old Testament significance. A more wooden translation could be that the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. While that might not bring anything to mind for us other than camping, for the first century Jewish reader, this would have immediately brought to mind the years that their ancestors had spent wandering in the wilderness between the time that God delivered them from Egyptian slave If you're a member or a regular attender here, you know that we've been studying through the book of Deuteronomy as a church. This phrase, dwelt among us, harkens back to that time of Exodus and Leviticus and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy um, where God was with the people everywhere they went in the tabernacle that they took with them. This tent that God decided to display his glory in among his people. Back in Exodus Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, when God was telling the Israelites to make this tent, he said, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of this tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So just as that tabernacle was God pitching his tent among the wandering Israelites, John tells us in our passage tonight that Christ, this word became flesh, has pitched his tent, has tabernacled among us. He has come to dwell among us, just as God did in the tabernacle. But it's important to understand that Jesus is not merely like that tabernacle. No, he's far better than that. He's everything that the tabernacle ever pointed to. He is the fulfillment of that physical place where God made his glory known to his people. No longer is the glory of God restricted to a tent or later to a temple, but now we see the glory of God dwelling in our midst, among us, in the person of Jesus Christ. One author summarizes this important point this way by saying, the glory of God once restricted to the tabernacle, is now visible in Christ. In, the baby, in that baby in the manger, the glory of God was seen among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the answer to our third question. Why did he do it? God became like us to be with us. And this is the beauty and the joy of Christmas, that God became like us to be with us. But why is that such good news? It's such good news because that's where we belong. God says in his word that the dwelling place of God is with man. But at the beginning, we were with God. God was with us at the start, and we were with God. We walked with him in the garden in the beginning. We lived in perfect, unhindered communion with him. We enjoyed him. But if you've read Genesis 3, you know what happened. We were lured away from our fellowship with our God by that crafty serpent. We disobeyed God. In a word, we sinned. And we were escorted out of that garden that God had made for communion with man and away from his presence. And things have never been the same since. We weren't just distanced from God, but we became his very enemies, insistent on doing our own thing, living in our pride and in our selfishness. We could no longer dwell with God because of the great rift that our sin had caused 
between us. We were at that time, Ephesians 2 says, without hope and without God in the world. But when that word became flesh, he came to dwell with us. Hope arrived in that baby in the manger. In love, he came to bring us back to himself. While sin remained, we could not be with God. From that first sin of Adam in the garden all the way to our most recent sin today, Christ came to absorb the punishment that is deservedly mine and deservedly yours in his death. All for the sake of being with us, his people. God came to us in Christ because we could never have come to God without him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Friends, you would have no way to our God if it weren't for this word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be with us so that he could make a way for us to be with him. When we look at Christ, the baby in the manger, we look forward to the cross knowing that he came for the purpose of redeeming a people for himself that could never have come to God otherwise. If you've trusted in that word made flesh, then let's rejoice together tonight and every day in this God who has come for us. The God who has saved us from our sins and brought us to himself. If, you are, if you're here tonight and you have not turned from yourself and your sin to this God who desires to dwell with you, don't delay. He will not turn you away if you turn to him. Nothing would bring me greater joy and nothing honestly would bring you greater joy than to be soothed like this man that I read, this Junius the Younger, than to be soothed by a humble faith in him who became flesh and dwelt among us. Our God became like us to be with us. Let's praise God for this glorious truth this Christmas that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's go to our God in prayer.